Welcome to episode four of NAB Digital Next, where we'll discuss the platformization of finance with Professor Douglas Arna of the University of Hong Kong. I'm Brad Carr of NAB's digital data and analytics team, and I'm privileged to host Doug, who I consider to be the world's foremost authority on this topic, aided by his close insights on what's already progressed in the Chinese market. As well as being the Kerry Holdings Professor in Law at the University of Hong Kong, Doug holds a number of board seats with innovation and development agencies around the world. He is a prolific author, especially on SSRN, the Social Science Research Network, and also for the likes of the BIS, Bank for International Settlements in Baal, and we'll pick up on his recent piece there on corporate digital identity as well. We'll hear from Doug, and then my NAB colleague Howard Silby will join me to add some reflections on Doug's insights, connecting those specifically to what we see here in the Australian and New Zealand markets. But firstly, Doug, thanks for joining us and welcome to NAB Digital Next. Thanks, Brad. Great to, to be here and uh, great to, to talk to you again. But if we can start firstly with the Chinese experience with platformization, the aborted IPO that Ant Financial had in, in late 2020, that had an interesting disclosure that 98% of the funding for their, their consumer and SME loans was coming from partner banks. We wondered whether that was perhaps them getting a bit greedy and taking too much of the margin from the state-owned banks. It's a fascinating ecosystem that's emerged there. You're very close to it and, and really want to hear how, how you've seen this landscape for Chinese tech firms and finance, both over the journey and also more recently. I think first we really have to, to say that one, um, the Chinese experience has been really incredible. I mean, the country has gone through not only a process of economic and social transformation, but over the past 15 years, the, the digital financial transformation is we've seen nothing like it uh, anywhere before. And I think we also have to say when we think about Alibaba and Ant, this has been uh, just an incredible business. Uh, you know, Jack Ma and his team have done an amazing thing with that firm, uh, and it really is uh, a unique, uh, a unique sort of thing. But I think if we look at the bigger picture uh, of of China, we have to think of it in the context of if we look back. 15 years ago, to the time of basically the 2008 global financial crisis, China was trying to figure out how to develop its financial market, how to get beyond its sort of state-dominated, state-centered, pretty inefficient system of banking and capital markets. And so they basically took a, an experiment to see whether digital could make a difference. And I think the short answer is it made an incredible difference. It absolutely transformed finance and economics. And if we look at the sort of big platforms that emerged, Ant in particular, but also Tencent and, and a number of others, I think the key that we see is really their combination of the sort of economies of scope and scale we see in finance with the network effects that we see in tech. And what this means is it supercharges the benefits uh, of size and scale and data concentration. And at the core of those business models was the collection and use of absolutely incredibly massive amounts of data. And using that data enabled them to undertake uh, cash flow based credit analysis, relationship based credit analysis to transform the way finance was being done in China. And I think that that is 
at the heart of what we have to see. But that's also where the problem emerges. In other words, that concentration, like we see with um, sort of Facebook, Microsoft, and others in the rest of the world, leads to dominance. And that dominance leads to the risk of winner takes all or winner takes most outcomes. And from the standpoint of, of China, that was really your sort of tension between the benefits that you get from massive data concentration and analysis and the fact that that data concentration and analysis was taking place within a very small number of private firms. And the contrast between the advantages in terms of SME credit in particular and the disadvantages of potentially reducing competition uh, and innovation. And so I think when we think about this point about the disclosure about 98% of the funding coming from uh, banks across the platform, you know, initially Ant had a model where they were providing the funding themselves. The regulators reacted to that because it was too much concentration of risk, demanded that they open it up, but the reality was that the platform was so good that it meant that everybody else basically had to use it. So even by reducing their sort of dominance, they still end up dominating everything. Uh, and the end result is the decision to basically break up the data ownership model. And I think that is really the key point. Fascinating how Ant, in some ways, has probably become a victim of their own success. As you said, they were just so good at it that it, it led itself to that concentration. But that broader theme you mentioned of the economies of scope, economies of scale, and how this leads to the winner-take-most scenario, you and I talked about this a year ago, and it was interesting, uh, UBS and IIF Chairman Axel Weber immediately jumped on that with us both afterwards and talked about how he's seeing this as being a, a catalyst for an added uh, consolidation amongst the global financial sector. Um, I was wondering, perhaps, if, if we pivot from that Chinese experience, um, where you might see lessons or, or, or trends emerging for the rest of the world and perhaps the learnings for the rest of the world from the, the added connectivity, the integration across other walks of life that these Chinese platforms have been bringing? Yeah, no, I think that's really an important point, and it's a question that, that I'm getting asked uh, a lot these days. And I think the first is this key role of aggregate data. In other words, aggregate data, um, big data, both um, if you're thinking about structured as well as non-structured data, the power of massive amounts of data is fundamental when we think about uh, the power of finance to transform lives, economies, and societies. And so the first lesson is really that, it's data. The second question, though, is that one needs to think about how do you go about maximizing the benefits of, of data uh, in a given economy or a given society? And I think the Chinese experience and also the U.S. experience to a large extent highlights that if you largely take uh, a sort of hands-off approach, the sort of market dynamics of economies of scope and scale and network effects will lead to concentration and dominance in a small number of basically private companies. And so what we're seeing are an increasing range of countries, China being one example, the EU uh, with its sort of approach to data and open banking being a second, 
India with its data aggregators being a third. Countries need to think about strategies to maximize the value of data while at the same time minimizing the risk of concentration and dominance. And I think the final point that I want to hit is the sort of really big picture aspect of this. And often people talk about uh, sort of Web3, the metaverse. And I think what you're seeing is a real dynamic tension between forces of concentration, of centralization and decentralization. And I think this decade, that's going to be one of our key themes is an ongoing tension between those two. And we're seeing that uh, in data in particular. And perhaps just briefly elaborating on that further, you, you mentioned earlier the case of SME credit uh, and how this had been one of the early use cases uh, promoted in, in China. And that is obviously an area that has, has historically suffered from some of the uh, data asymmetries. This has been one of the sort of holy grails of finance for the past several decades, because, of course, uh, SMEs drive employment, they drive innovation. Uh, but at the same time, from the standpoint of the costs of doing business with an SME for a traditional financial institution, it's just as expensive, if not more expensive, to do business with an SME as it is to do business with a giant company. And so you have this sort of natural tension. And we have tried many different things uh, to, to try uh, to, to address that sort of challenge. And perhaps really the first big success we've had has been the examples of, of Ant and Amazon and others taking these sort of massive amounts of structured and unstructured data from a variety of different sources and using that as the basis for cash flow, reputational and credit analysis, and in particular, automating that, which then brings down the cost uh, of the analytic process and makes the lending uh, economic to the lender and has real transformative potential. At the same time, over the past, you know, since 2008, we've had this big picture focus on financial inclusion. And financial inclusion, we tended mainly to focus on individuals. But really, SMEs from the standpoint of financial inclusion are probably where, beyond individuals, the next big level of benefit lies. And the real challenge in some ways has been digitizing those SMEs. And I think as we think forward, we're thinking not only about data aggregation, but we're also thinking about ways in which we can encourage businesses to help SMEs digitize in order to make it easier to do business with those customers and basically build uh, a positive cycle. Let's continue with that, that thread, actually, um, because you also did a, an excellent paper on digital identity for corporates mm -hmm. recently for the BIS. Um, and I think they that opening the, the opportunities for SME enterprises to participate with a wider remit with greater integration across the global economy and through trade finance, I, I think was a, correct me if I'm wrong, a, a big motive or a big underlying driver uh, behind that paper. And you picked up on the need for greater collaboration in digital identity, both between the public and the private sectors, but also across borders, important initiatives like the, the GLIFE, the Global Legal Entity Identity Foundation, uh, and looking for ways to help with greater security and authentication for international trade transactions. If I try to make you distill that down, what would you most like to see or what do you think could be most impactful for helping galvanise SMEs and other enterprises in that space? Yeah, no, I think this is something that 
um, we had already seen in the individual context, even before COVID, the experiences of, of India in particular and the power uh, of base biometric identification systems for um, empowering individuals for including individuals. And I think what we saw in COVID really dramatically has driven that forward. Almost every country around the world is now looking at digital identity systems for the simple fact that not only is it good from the standpoint of inclusion, but also from the standpoint of resilience and response to crisis. If everyone has access to an account, access to digital payments, you can easily get resources to them when they need it, uh, and they can also engage digitally. And so we saw that on the individual side. And I think the COVID experience really has highlighted the challenge of digital inclusion for businesses. In other words, we saw that businesses which were digitally enabled actually have done reasonably well across COVID. The ones that have had more troubles are the ones that have been not able, who have been digitally excluded. And so I think if we take this COVID-driven sort of economic benefit uh, of inclusion of businesses combined with uh, our long-term post-2008 focus from the standpoint of using identity to better understand interconnections and risks. And if we wanna take it one more step forward and think about market integrity issues around money laundering and sanctions, um, you know, you have a very powerful set of reasons why it's very useful to have a sort of standardized agreed form of base corporate identity. And in some ways, the irony is that globally, there really isn't. Every jurisdiction has its own standardized mechanisms for establishing legal entities, which each provide them with different sorts of identification and numbers, which means that basically it's impossible from the standpoint of identification to use those domestic systems, uh, particularly when you're looking at uh, a conglomerate business that has multiple legal entities. And so, yeah, I think there's now a real understanding of the power and value of base corporate ID. And the fact that once you have that base identity, you can then connect it to huge amounts of information. You know, one area where we've seen this is actually in the context of stock markets. If you think about a listing, once a company lists on a stock exchange, it has a certain number and you can link vast amounts of information to that number but that number is often different than its underlying corporate IDs. Uh, one can think about the Edgar system in the United States, where you have a number that is then linked to vast amounts of information. You can take it one step forward and you can think about ESA. It's the European single access point, which is basically meant to be an EU Edgar for all sorts of listed company information, but actually then adding on all of their ESG taxonomy requirements to enable you to analyze not only the financial, but also the full range of ESG data in a single interface with standardized data, which provides tremendous power from the standpoint of both analytics for investors, as well as from the public sector looking for impact. And so, yeah, I think our key point is really agreeing 
a standard formulation for corporate identity, which can then be linked uh, to all sorts of different information. Uh, and probably the best we have at the moment is the work going on through uh, the GLEAF and the legal entity identifier process. It's been slow. And part of that is because we see very different levels of development across corporate registries uh, in different jurisdictions. They're often quasi-private, quasi-governmental, and therefore uh, they kind of operate on their own, not entirely subject to direction. Uh, and therefore it's been very difficult to get these organizations together to really get an agreement on a standardized approach, which I think everybody now increasingly agrees would have tremendous benefits. Absolutely. And you've laid out a number of really important imperatives for that around how we try and counter the, the scourge of, of trade-based money laundering. Uh, you've alluded there, I think, to the, the challenge of overcoming greenwashing, as well as just ensuring that we're creating the growth opportunities for small enterprises to be able to tap export markets um, in a safe and secure fashion in the digital economy. It's a great uh, a great underline for why we need to focus on corporate digital identity. And you know, we've got great initiatives in our market following the lead of Canada and, and Norway in terms of, of personal and consumer uh, digital identity, but we can't stop there. Uh, Doug, to conclude, I want to link some of the issues and the concepts that we've talked about here to the policy framework. And another paper that you published earlier this year on, on governing fintech 4.0. Um, you and your co-authors, which included our, our good friend Ross Buckley at the University of New South Wales, um, you and the team made the point that many of the initiatives and the emerging issues in the new economy transcend some of the existing policy constructs, the mandates of existing agencies and departments that were probably built and, and resourced up and skilled for a different time. Um, can you share any closing thoughts for us on how governments could optimise their approaches or perhaps their readiness for the kind of changes that we're seeing in the broader economy? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really important point. And, and yeah, I should highlight that much of this work is, is done with uh, not only Ross, but also Dirk Zetsch at uh, the University of Luxembourg. And uh, it's, it's a tremendous uh, partnership between the three of us. So always great to, to highlight them. Uh, you know, I think from the standpoint of, of governments, the, the challenge or really the starting point is recognizing that many of these issues cut across uh, a range of different existing frameworks. In other words, if we look at something like uh, a big tech that is operating in finance, you know, it crosses across competition antitrust frameworks, it crosses across financial regulation, it crosses across tech regulation, it crosses across telecoms regulation, usually a range of other things. Uh, cybersecurity, of course, which can, of course, be both financial as well as non-financial. And I think the starting point is to realize that many of these entities and issues cut across a range of different silos. And really, the central need is to put together you know, committees, working groups, councils that bring together the different perspectives uh, so that everyone can try to be focusing uh, not only on, on, you know, together, but also realizing 
that there are valid perspectives in other regulatory organizations that sometimes may agree with yours, sometimes may conflict for valid reasons. And we see this particularly, I think, in the context of, of data. Uh, and I think the starting point for a government is to recognize this sort of cross-department, cross-level aspect and bring together groups, working groups and, and councils. Great insights as always there from Doug, and there's much to learn from China's experience with major tech platforms, as well as the leadership in Asia and from bodies like the BIS Innovation Hub in Hong Kong on how innovation and identity can intersect to support international trade and small business growth. With our local context in mind, I'm joined now by Howard Silby, NAB's Executive for Innovation and Partnerships. Howard, if we could start with, with Doug's observations on the rise and I think the reach of Ant Financial, how have you seen this emerging business model and what implications do you see for our market? Well, Brad, thanks. And a great question. And the, the platformization of financial services is um, is just you know an extraordinary development. And uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be over in person in China with uh, Angie Mintis and our BNZ board and visit Ant Financial um, and Alibaba. Um, tremendous organization. I think here locally, you can sort of think about this in two ways. Either banks are going to support the platformization of financial services and be the power behind other powers, or maybe with a sense of hubris, they're going to try and dominate, you know, financial ecosystems and broader ecosystems themselves. And I think, you know, different banks will take different approaches. We've seen at least one retail bank here try and extend its services uh, into other areas and be the big front door and the and and the big power locally in retail banking. Um, and NAB, obviously, as a strong business bank. You know, we have strong aspirations to develop more products and services for our business bank customers. And indeed, we've just announced the uh, the investment in Friday, which provides yet more services as we build out over time to our business banking customers. So I think this idea that in some contexts we will be uh, a, a platform enabler of other platforms and in other contexts we want to be the dominant provider and platform ourselves, I think that will continue to play out. And I think we see that happening in other parts of the world too, that that there's not a simple either or strategic answer here, that it's very much about targeting to particular market segments and where the capabilities and the, the products and services are a best fit. Um, Howard, maybe continuing with a little bit of that theme, Doug referred to this tension, as he put it, between the competing forces of centralisation and decentralisation. He talked about notions of Web3 and the metaverse enabling decentralisation or perhaps disintermediation. But also the economies of scope and scale and how these drive a greater impetus for some of these these platforms. Interested in how you see that part of the landscape playing out. Yeah, and a, another great tension that that he observed that we that we see playing out. And I guess the way I think about this, it's not a perfect analogy, but um, unfortunately, I'm old enough to to be around at the early stages of uh, of of the internet, or at least uh, pre its commercialization. Um, in fact, pre the uh, the use of the World Wide Web and the browser. Um, so you know, initially the internet very decentralized. Um, you know, very uncommercial in terms of your know, ability to access information and the generosity of uh, of participants in that largely academic network. Uh, but then, of course, we saw these great content creators and providers and service providers uh, increasingly aggregate information in their own 
in their own ecosystems, so to speak, um, and you know deliver you know tremendous experiences to customers. So I think we're seeing that playing out, you know, in the early days of Web three as well. So I think there'll continue to be this tension between, you know, do you have true independence? Um, do you have true decentralization? And, and obviously, there's a debate also about how much blockchain technology will enable that. Um, or will people congregate in, you know, tremendous areas of content and service provision that are still, you know, somewhat, you know, ring fenced, uh, perhaps not as interoperable as we would like them. So, you know, I think that you know, the perfect the perfect solution would be a degree of interoperability between a lot of these different ecosystems. But there is a long way uh, for those sort of forces of of both centralization on commercial forces and decentralization still to play out. Pivoting a little bit, Howard, at NAB, we've also got a major focus on how we innovate to help our customers through the transition to a decarbonised economy. And Doug picked up on this as well and made the linkage from corporate digital identity for corporates and for small and medium enterprises about how they show their ESG credentials, how we help to overcome greenwashing. Do you think the journey towards open data and, and some of the solutions that we might develop or deploy from that, is this going to be a way to help businesses understand and validate their social and environmental impacts? Well, what I would say, Brad, is that open data certainly can play a role, but I think the key is just the ability um, to access data full stop. And sort of Doug talked about the, you know, the key role of sort of aggregate data um, in, in, in the sort of powering some of the financial platforms now. I think, um, you know, there is still a long journey to go to get consistency around taxonomies and the types of data that we need to collect and measure. Um, to to help that you know, our progress towards net zero and other aspects of the ESG agenda, uh, but I think the provision of data and the access of that data will be absolutely fundamental to helping us understand our own performance as banks, the performance of our clients, and their genuine progress towards uh, towards those goals. And we've already seen, you know, in the EU. Um, you know, banks starting to be, uh, you know, uh, taken taken, you know, to, to court over over effectively greenwashing claims. Um, so, you know, I think this is a really important area where the quality of the data is not necessarily all open data, but it, it certainly needs to be consistent, understood, verifiable, um, and you know, I think there's there's. A, a tremendous role to have that more organized, more accessible and more transparent you know, as time goes on and we understand you know, what the best way to, to measure and, and, and hold each other to account for our ESG progress is. Well, Howard, thank you. And, and of course, a big thank you to our special guest, Professor Douglas Arna of the University of Hong Kong. Looking ahead on NAB Digital Next, we're going to speak with Bill Cohen, the former Secretary General of the Bail Committee for Banking Supervision discussing developments in regtech and subtech, that's technology for regulation and supervision. And we'll also compare notes across Australia and the UK on open banking with Dan Globison, the head of open banking at NatWest. Please join us again then. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on NAB Digital Next.